Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jude Kelly. I'm the Artistic Director of the South Bank Centre. I'd really like to welcome you all here. It's going to be a very important evening. Stephen won't be with us tonight because of ill health, which he will explain on film. Uh, he is still going to contribute a keynote, especially for this occasion, under the great su supreme mastery of Michael Burke, who is going to be comparing this evening and speaking to both Stephen and Lord Rees. It's really terrific that Lord Rees is here because he's a great friend and compatriot of Stephen Hawking and uh, himself a world thinker. But the person who we're really grateful for hosting this evening, somebody who has a whole history of broadcasting around the idea of ethics, morals, and what humans should be considering on a daily basis, Michael Burke. So could we welcome Michael Burke and Lord Rees to the stage? Thank you. Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're here to pay tribute to one of the most extraordinary individuals ever to have inhabited space-time. It's the contradictions that are so heroic, so impressive, and so poignant. The mind that's ranged the universe in search of its meaning, while the body has been cruelly trapped in the tightening vice of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. A disease that over the years has taken away speech and nearly all movement, but could not confine either intellect or personality. A theoretical physicist who works in calculations light years beyond the negative curvature of my understanding, yet an author who could write the brief history of time so plainly, but so luminously, that we can persuade ourselves, if only for a moment, that we too have had a glimpse of the infinite a life spent wrestling with theorems from a wheelchair that is yet so moving, so stark a story of adversity and triumph that it becomes an odyssey for the big screen. A life that looked once barely likely to reach adulthood that has lasted three quarters of a century to his 75th birthday. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Stephen Hawking. I would like to welcome each and every one of you to this special event this evening and to thank you for attending. I am sorry, but for health reasons I cannot be with you personally tonight. I am recording this at my home in Cambridge and I am pleased to have this opportunity to transcend space and time to speak with you now. I hope you enjoy what you are about to see and hear tonight an occasion which also opens South Bank Center's Belief and Beyond Festival. I wish you an enjoyable evening. This is not only or merely a celebration of Professor Hawking's once so unlikely 75th birthday. It also marks the release of a new version, a spin-off, a development of his greatest and most successful work, A Brief History of Time. It brings that most unlikely of publishing successes above the event horizon of a new generation who want to view space from cyberspace. It's an app called, appropriately, the Pocket Universe, for it brings Professor Hawking's thoughts on matter, space, and time alive on your phone. The colors and the beauty and the logic of the universe in your pocket. 
I have devoted my life to the study of cosmology and black holes. When I wrote a brief history of time, I did so with the intention of explaining fundamental questions about our universe. Professor Hawking, it's an honor and a privilege to meet you, sir. I know. that my original text is getting a new lease of life, in the form of an app. I hope the brief history of time app will bring my work to a whole new generation of people looking to find out how it all began. Those who can pay a really knowledgeable tribute to Professor Hawking are necessarily members of a small and rather rarefied group. First among them must surely be the Astronomer Royal, Lord Rees of Ludlow. As Martin Rees, he was a near contemporary of Stephen Hawking during graduate studies at Cambridge, a cosmologist and astrophysicist, a public figure and prolific author, former master of Trinity College and former president of the Royal Society. Who better to measure the man and his achievement? Lord Rees. Back in 1964, I enrolled as a graduate student at Cambridge. I encountered a fellow student two years ahead of me in his studies. He was unsteady on his feet and spoke with difficulty. This was Stephen Hawking. I learned he had a degenerative disease and might not live long enough even to finish his PhD. Astronomers are used to large numbers, but few numbers could be as large as the odds I'd have given back then against ever celebrating his amazing crescendo of achievement, sustained now for more than 50 years. Mere survival would have been a medical marvel. But of course, he hasn't merely survived. He's become the most famous scientist in the world, acclaimed for his brilliant researches, for his books about space, time, and the cosmos, and above all, for his astonishing triumph over adversity. After getting his PhD, Stephen quickly made his mark. He came up with insights into the nature of black holes, then a very new idea, and into how our universe began. In a few minutes, we'll hear about this in his own words. For the work, in the few years after his PhD, he became, in 1974, a Fellow of the Royal Society, when he was only 32. He was by then so frail that we suspected he could scale no further heights. But for Stephen, this was still just the beginning. I would sometimes push his wheelchair into his office. And he'd asked me to open an abstruse book 
on quantum field theory, the science of atoms, which wasn't a subject he'd hitherto much engaged with. He'd sit motionless for hours. He couldn't even turn the pages without help. I wondered what was going through his mind and if his powers were failing. But within a few months, he came up with his best ever idea, encapsulated in an equation that he says he wants on his gravestone. He discovered a profound and unexpected link between gravity and the quantum. He predicted that black holes weren't completely black, but would radiate in a characteristic way. And I leave him to explain what it's all about. So-called Hawking radiation remains a topic of debate and controversy even 40 years after discovery, and Stephen is still spearheading it, especially remarkable in a mathematical subject where researchers, even the healthy ones, generally peak at a fairly early age. He's continued to seek new links between the very large, the cosmos, and the very small, atoms and the quantum, and to gain deeper insights into the very beginning of our universe, addressing such questions as, was our Big Bang the only one? He reminds us that he's not another Einstein. Nonetheless, he's one of this country's greatest scientists, and he's done as much as anyone else since Einstein to deepen our knowledge of gravity, space, and time. And he spread this knowledge widely. When the American edition of A Brief History of Time appeared, the printers had made errors. One picture was upside down, and the publishers tried to recall the stock. To their amazement, all copies had already been sold. This was the first inkling that the book was destined for huge success. Four years on bestseller lists around the world. And this made him a celebrity as well as a leading scientist. And ever since, as well as continuing his research, he's lectured to large audiences around the world. And in the White House, the Vatican, and the Great Hall of the People. In principle, he has one advantage over the rest of us lecturers. He can really go more global because new software could translate his speech into Japanese, Korean, or any other language. But we're now going to hear from Stephen himself, and we'll hear it in English. Thank you very much. I feel honored to have you join me for my 75th birthday celebration. This anniversary has put me in a reflective mood, so I hope you will indulge me while I look back over my life and discuss how our understanding of the state of the universe has changed. I was born on January 8, 1942, exactly 300 years after the death of Galileo. However, I estimate that about 200,000 other babies were also born that day. I don't know whether any of them were later interested in astronomy. I was born in Oxford, even though my parents were living in London. This was because Oxford was a good place to be born during World War II. The Germans had an agreement that they would not bomb Oxford and Cambridge in return for the British not bombing Heidelberg and Göttingen. It is a pity that this civilized sort of arrangement couldn't have been extended to more cities. In 1950, my father's place of work moved to the northern edge of London, so my family moved nearby to the cathedral city of St. Albans. I was sent to the high school for girls, 
which despite its name took place up to the age of 10, but later I went to St. Albans School. I was never more than about halfway up the class. It was a very bright class. I had six or seven close friends, and I remember having long discussions and arguments about everything, from radio-controlled models to religion. One of the things we talked about was the origin of the universe, and whether it required a god to create it, and set it going. My father was very keen that I should go to Oxford or Cambridge. He himself had gone to University College, Oxford, so he thought I should apply there. But at that time, University College had no fellow in mathematics, so I had little option but to try for a scholarship in natural science. I surprised myself by being successful. In the end, I have wound up being a professor of mathematics, but I have not had any formal instruction in mathematics since I left St. Albans School at the age of 17. I have had to pick up what mathematics I know as I went along. At Oxford, the physics course was arranged in a way that made it particularly easy to avoid work. I once calculated that I did about a thousand hours work in the three years I was there, an average of an hour a day. I'm not proud of this. Because of my lack of work, I had planned to get through the final exam by doing problems in theoretical physics and avoiding questions that required factual knowledge. But I didn't sleep the night before the exam and so I didn't do very well. In the interview they asked me about my future plans. I replied that I wanted to do research. If they gave me a first, I would go to Cambridge. If I only got a second, I would stay in Oxford. They gave me a first. I was 20 in October 1962 when I arrived in Cambridge at the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. I was assigned to Dennis Sharma. Because I hadn't done much mathematics, Sharma suggested I work on astrophysics. But I had come to Cambridge to do cosmology, and cosmology I was determined to do. So I read old textbooks on general relativity, and traveled up to hear relativity lectures at King's College London each week. At that time, it became clear something was not quite right with me. Already in Oxford, I had noticed that I could no longer row a sculling boat properly. The Christmas after arriving in Cambridge, I went home. It was a very cold winter and my mother persuaded me to go skating on the lake in St. Albans, even though I knew I was not up to it. I fell over and had great difficulty getting up again. My mother realized something was wrong and took me to the doctor. I spent weeks in Bart's hospital and had many tests. They never actually told me what was wrong, but I guessed enough to know it was pretty bad, so I didn't want to ask. In fact, the doctor who diagnosed me washed his hands of me, and I never saw him again. He felt that there was nothing that could be done. 
At first I became depressed. I seemed to be getting worse pretty rapidly. There didn't seem any point working on my PhD, because I didn't know if I would live long enough to finish it. But then the condition developed more slowly, and I began to make progress in my work. After my expectations had been reduced to zero, every new day became a bonus, and I began to appreciate everything I did have. While there's life, there is hope. And there was also a young woman called Jane, whom I had met at a party. Getting engaged lifted my spirits, and I realized, if we were going to get married, I had to get a job and finish my PhD. I began to work hard, and I enjoyed it. The big question in cosmology in the early 60s was did the universe have a beginning? Many scientists were instinctively opposed to the idea because they felt that a point of creation would be a place where science broke down. One would have to appeal to religion in the hand of God to determine how the universe would start off. This was clearly a fundamental question, and it was just what I needed to complete my PhD thesis. A new approach was introduced by Roger Penrose, who proved that once a dying star had contracted to a certain radius, there would inevitably be a singularity, a point where space and time came to an end. I realized that similar arguments could be applied to the expansion of the universe. In this case, I could prove there were singularities where space-time had a beginning. General relativity did indeed predict that the universe should have a beginning. My work on black holes began in the 1970s with the Eureka moment, shortly after the birth of my daughter, Lucy, while getting into bed, which my disability makes a slow process. If general relativity is correct, and the energy density is positive, the surface area of the event horizon, the boundary of a black hole, has the property that it always increases when additional matter or radiation falls into the black hole. Moreover, if two black holes collide and merge to form a single black hole, the area of the event horizon around the resulting black hole is greater than the sum of the areas of the event horizons around the original black holes. My black hole area theorem can be tested experimentally by LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. On the 14th of September, 2015, LIGO, for the first time, detected gravitational waves from the collision and merger of a black hole binary. From the waveform, one can estimate the masses and angular momenta of the black holes, and by the no-hair theorem, these determine the horizon areas. LIGO has opened a new way of viewing our universe, and with many more detections expected, I am excited by the possibility of new discoveries. There was a golden age, in which we solved most of the major problems in black hole theory. This was before there was any observational evidence for black holes. In fact, we were so successful with the classical general theory of relativity 
that I was at a bit of a loose end in 1973, after the publication with George Ellis, of our book, The Large-Scale Structure of Spacetime. My work with Penrose had shown that general relativity broke down at singularities. So the obvious next step would be to combine general relativity, the theory of the very large, with quantum theory, the theory of the very small. I had no background in quantum theory, and the singularity problem seemed too difficult for a frontal assault at that time. So as a warm-up exercise, I considered how particles and fields governed by quantum theory would behave near a black hole. In particular, I wondered, can one have atoms in which the nucleus is a tiny primordial black hole formed in the early universe? To answer this, I studied how quantum fields or particles would scatter off a black hole. I was expecting that part of an incident wave would be absorbed and the remainder scattered. But to my great surprise, I found there seemed to be emission from the black hole itself. At first, I thought this must be a mistake in my calculation, but what persuaded me that it was real was that the emission was exactly what was required to identify the area of the horizon with the entropy of a black hole. It is summed up in this simple formula which expresses the entropy in terms of the area of the horizon and the three fundamental constants of nature, c, the speed of light, g, Newton's constant of gravitation, and h-bar, Planck's constant. I am proud to have discovered it. The radiation from a black hole will carry away energy, so the black hole will lose mass and shrink. Eventually, it seems the black hole will evaporate completely and disappear. But how could the radiation left over carry all the information about what made the black hole? If information is lost, this would be incompatible with quantum mechanics. Recently, I found what I think is its resolution. I am working with Malcolm Perry and Andy Strominger on a new theory based on a mathematical idea called superrotations to explain the mechanism by which information is returned out of the black hole. We believe the information is encoded on the horizon of the black hole. Watch this space. During the 1970s, I had been working mainly on black holes, but my interest in cosmology was renewed by the suggestions that the early universe had gone through a period of rapid inflationary expansion, in which its size grew at an ever-increasing rate, like the way prices have increased since Brexit. Some people have suggested that the universe started with a period of what is called eternal inflation, in which quantum fluctuations dominate, and that the transition to the exponential expansion occurs at different times in different places. This would give the universe a fractal structure. Recently, Thomas Hertog and I have found that the transition to exponential expansion is smooth and the universe doesn't have a fractal structure. In early 1982, 
I wrote a preprint proposing that the seats for structures in our universe could be created by quantum effects during inflation. This was basically the same mechanism as radiation from a black hole horizon, except that this time it came from the cosmological horizon. Today, the Planck satellite has provided us with a high-resolution map of the temperature of the cosmic microwave sky, a snapshot of the universe at about one-hundredth of its present age. The irregularities you see were precisely predicted by the theory of inflation, and mean that some regions of the universe had a slightly higher density than others. The gravitational attraction of the extra density slows the expansion of that region, and can eventually cause it to collapse, to form galaxies, stars, planets, and all of us. So look carefully at the map of the microwave sky. It is a blueprint for all the structure in the universe. In the early 80s, I spent time at the Institute of Theoretical Physics in Santa Barbara. Jim Hartle and I formulated the no-boundary proposal, the boundary condition of the universe, is that it has no boundary. According to this theory, it makes no sense to talk of a time before the universe began. It would be like asking for a point south of the South Pole. It is not defined. We had sidestepped the scientific and philosophical difficulty of time having a beginning by turning it into a direction in space. In this picture, the universe will be spontaneously created out of nothing. It will start out almost completely smooth, except for the tiny departures predicted by inflation, which then give rise to all the structure in the universe we see about us. Around the time of my no-boundary work, I decided to write a popular book. I thought I might make a modest amount to help support my children at school and the rising costs of my care, but the main reason was because I enjoyed it. While I was writing it, I visited CERN, and I became critically ill with pneumonia, and lost my voice due to a trichostomy. But I kept putting a lot of effort into the book, because I think it's important for scientists to explain their work, particularly in cosmology. I never expected a brief history of time to do as well as it has, and I hope that my new app will be successful in explaining my work. So let me finish by reflecting on the state of the universe. It has been a glorious time to be alive and doing research in theoretical physics. The fact that we humans, who are ourselves mere collections of fundamental particles of nature, have been able to come to an understanding of the laws governing us and our universe, it's a great triumph. I want to share my excitement and enthusiasm about this quest. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Be curious. And however difficult life may seem, there is always something you can do and succeed at. It matters that you don't just give up. Thank you for listening.
That book, A Brief History of Time, From the Big Bang to Black Holes, was first published in 1988. Stephen Hawking noted in the book's acknowledgments that he was warned that for every equation in the book, the readership would be halved. Hence, it only includes a single equation that even I have heard of, E equals MC squared. It's so far sold over 12 million copies. In early discussions with his US editor about the book, the title was under discussion. Stephen was worried about the word brief. His editor, Peter Guzzardi, said he liked it, that it made him smile. It was for this reason that Guzzardi prevailed. Guzzardi wasn't a scientist. He felt that whatever he couldn't understand in the manuscript had to be rewritten and pointed out that Hawking sometimes jumped from thought to thought and came to surprising conclusions, just assuming that others would see the connections. His graduate assistant, Bryant Witt, who was helping with the book, said that sometimes Hawking would tell him that something must be so because of what I understand, not because he could prove it or explain how he arrived there. Brian would do the calculations and sometimes have to report to Hawking that he had been wrong. Hawking would not believe him. Then, after some consideration and talking about it, Brian would realize that Stephen was right after all. As he said, his hunch was better than my calculation. It didn't stop Guzzardi sending back endless lists of questions for Stephen to answer whenever he received a chapter that was annoying for him. But in the end, he admitted it was a better book as a result. The book was first published in the United States on April Fool's Day, 1988, and was launched in the UK on the 16th of June at the Royal Society. One review compared it to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, an early 1970s bestseller and the biggest selling philosophy book ever. Stephen declared that he was flattered by this, as it means that it gives people the feeling that they needn't be cut off from the great intellectual and philosophical questions. In a foreword to the 1996 edition, Stephen Hawking said, I don't think anyone, my publishers, my agent or myself, expected the book to do anything like as well as it did. It was in the London Sunday Times bestseller list for 237 weeks, longer than any other book. Apparently, the Bible and Shakespeare aren't counted. It's been translated into over 40 languages and has sold about one copy for ever, every 750 men, women, and children in the world. Stephen Hawking went on to say, as Nathan Mervolt of Microsoft, a former postdoc of mine, remarked, I have sold more books on physics than Madonna has on sex. It's a thought to toy with. Well, that's what he said about the book. Let's hear Stephen Hawking himself reading from A Brief History of Time. A well-known scientist, some say it was Bertrand Russell, once gave a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the Earth orbits around the Sun, and how the Sun, in turn, orbits around the center of a vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you have told us is rubbish. 
The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, What is the tortoise standing on? You're very clever, young man, very clever, said the old lady, but it's turtles all the way down. Most people would find the picture of our universe as an infinite tower of tortoises rather ridiculous, but why do we think we know better? What do we know about the universe, and how do we know it? Where did the universe come from, and where is it going? Did the universe have a beginning, and if so, what happened before then? What is the nature of time? Will it ever come to an end? Can we go back in time? Recent breakthroughs in physics, made possible in part by fantastic new technologies, suggest answers to some of these long-standing questions. Someday these answers may seem as obvious to us as the Earth orbiting the Sun, or perhaps as ridiculous as a tower of tortoises. Only time, whatever that may be, will tell. However, if we do discover a complete theory, it should in time be understandable in broad principle by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we in the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then we would know the mind of God. Penguin Random House wanted to give the public what amounts to a rare opportunity to submit questions to the professor, so decided to use social media to crowdsource some options. Last November, Penguin posed the question, what would you ask Stephen Hawking via both Facebook and Twitter, and got a lot of interesting and intelligent responses, including, which is correct, string theory or loop quantum gravity? Well, that's obvious, surely. Is there black matter in wormholes and beyond? Is it possible to use black matter so as to travel in space? However, the ones chosen by Professor Hawking to answer tonight are the following. And this is the first question, submitted by Anthony Carey on Facebook. What came before Big Bang? According to the No Boundary proposal, Asking what came before the Big Bang is meaningless because there is no notion of time available to refer to. The concept of time only exists within our universe. This one, submitted by Himal Upal in India via Twitter. Is there a possibility that a black hole might consume the Earth or its neighboring planets in the near future? No. It's not something you have to worry about any time soon. Even our nearest black hole is 2,800 light years away. I'm okay, I don't know about you. And the third question, submitted by Kean Sultani on Facebook. What's the likelihood of interstellar space travel in the next 50 years? We have already made the first step towards interstellar space travel. In April last year, Yuri Milmer and myself announced Breakthrough Starshot. It is an ambitious project aiming to accelerate a small monograph probe 
to 20% of the speed of light in order to reach our nearest star, Alpha Centauri. If successful, it would mark the first time a man-made object has made an interstellar journey. Of course, there are significant challenges to overcome, but these are engineering problems, not limitations set by the laws of physics. An engineering challenges tend, eventually, to be solved. Professor Hawking answering some of our questions. It would perhaps be easy to be transfixed by Professor Hawking's intellect and the magnitude of the questions with which it has wrestled, or the disability with which he has struggled for so long. But he is more than a brain in a wheelchair. He's a man with an undiminished personality and interests and ambitions that transcend both his limitations and his specialism. Lord Rees again. First, just a word stimulated by Stephen's comments just now on the engineering challenge of space. All theorists, even the top ones, are mindful of pure thought alone can't tell us about the cosmos. We need observations made with spacecraft and amazingly intricate and sensitive instruments to check our theories. And these need as much brain power as the theories and, of course, cost a lot more money. For instance, Stephen highlighted the discovery last year of gravitational waves triggered by two black holes spiraling together. This required a laser system which could measure vibrations in the fabric of space so tiny that it's like measuring the thickness of a hair at the distance of Alpha Centauri. An amazing technical feat, needing lots of money and a thousand people. There's an old cartoon showing two beavers looking up at a huge hydroelectric dam. One says to the other, I didn't actually build it, but it's based on my idea. Experimenters like that metaphor for the symbiosis between theory and experiment. And these astonishing engineering triumphs should indeed humble us theorists. Well, so much for the science. I'd like to close with just some cameos from Stephen's life. The movie, The Theory of Everything, which probably most people here have seen, sensitively portrayed the 25 years during which he and Jane brought up a family and he gained celebrity status. And it's good that both Stephen and Jane were happy with this movie. But it left us only halfway through Stephen's adult life. So a few words about more recent times. Stephen is far from being the archetype nerdish scientist. His personality has remained remarkably unwarped by the frustrations his handicaps cause. And as well as his inveterate scientific travels, he enjoys trips to the theater and opera, and he always enjoys parties. But he's also always been sensitive to the misfortunes of others. He records that in hospital soon after his illness was diagnosed, his depression lifted when he compared his lot with that in a boy in an ex-bed who was dying of leukemia. And he's a determined campaigner for the disabled. He's been involved in many of those campaigns. And he's got robust common sense, and he's been happy to align himself with many other causes too. When he visited Israel, he insisted on going to the West Bank. Newspapers in 2006, especially a big double-page center spread in The Guardian, showed remarkable pictures of him in his wheelchair, surrounded by fascinated and curious crowds in Ramallah. 
Even more astonishing are the photographs of him floating in the NASA spacecraft, the vomit comet it's sometimes called, which allows passengers to experience weightlessness. We saw a glimpse of that in the opening movie. Stephen was manifestly overjoyed at escaping, albeit briefly, the clutches of the gravitational force he'd studied for decades. And he's always said he would like to go into orbit. And in 2012, he reached his largest ever audience when he played a star role in the opening ceremony at the London Paralympics. Tragedy struck Stephen when he was only 21. As he's told us, his expectations then dropped to zero and everything that's happened since then seemed a bonus. And what a triumph his life has been. His name will live in the annals of science. Millions have had their cosmic horizons widened by his books, and even more around the world have been inspired by a unique example of achievement against all the odds. It's been wonderful to have this chance to see and hear him and to acclaim his first 75 years, so let's all wish Stephen a happy birthday.